Welcome to the Women's Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Sheridan House. We continue today in the series, God's Masterpiece, a study of women in the Bible. If you've missed any part of this series, you can find it and many others online at SheridanHouse.org. We hope you enjoy today's lesson. And Well, welcome back, and um, it is just good to see you, and um, those of you who are online, uh, welcome, and um, it's just really fun that we are all gathering from really across the country, some of the women, to be studying with us as we look at God's masterpiece, um, talking about being his divine design and how he loves to use all of us. And to, to, so today, we're going to continue in the first chapter of the book of Ruth, and um, so find that if you already haven't. We're going to start at the sixth verse. And um, just in review from last week, we talked about how this took place in the time of Judges. This was early on in the history of Israel. This was after Joshua brought them out of the wilderness and into the promised land, and they claimed the promised land. And then this was a period of time before the kings took over, before the golden era of Israel, when David took the throne and then Solomon followed him. This was a time of judges. We talked last week how it was a time of turmoil. It was a time of unrest. It was a time of idolatry. It was a, a time when people, it, very interesting, the last verse in the book of Judges before we begin in the book of Ruth said everybody, I'm paraphrasing, but everybody did their own thing in the way they wanted to do it. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Wow, unfortunately. And when we have that kind of attitude, when we're not relying on God, who loves and knows us so intimately, it causes a dark time in our lives personally, and it caused a dark time in Israel. And in the midst of that, we're going to zoom into, and did last week, a particular family. Because there was famine in Israel, uh, Elimelech, the father, moved the family, two sons and a mother, to Moab. We talked about last week how Moab was um, not a good spot for Jewish people to go. They were considered one of their mortal enemies. And, um, but they moved there because of the famine in the land. While they were there, we talked about how Elimelech, the dad, uh, died. And then soon thereafter, the sons married Moabite women, which again was very frowned on by the Jewish community. And, um, and then soon thereafter, the sons died. And so we saw that Naomi, the wife, the mother, was now here by herself and her two daughters. And that's where we're picking up our story uh, today. So first on your outline, Naomi heads home. Naomi heads home. We see no, no, Naomi in this section of the chapter making a decision. Look with me to verse 6. Look what, look what it says. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. Now the word arose used, frequ uh, used frequently in Hebrew indicates a commencement of activity. When we say, say arose, we kind of think of getting up out of the chair or something like that. But what it means in the Hebrew context is something was about to happen. There was an action that was about to, to, to be taken, especially in regard to a journey. Notice that all the verbs used in this scene are singular. It doesn't say, and they decided, 
or she and the daughters-in-law decided. It says she decided. It's a singular uh, verb. It's a singular. And so we know that this was her initiative. This was her idea. And as she was hearing, well, we'll talk about that in just a minute, but as she began hearing things that were happen happening back in the land of Israel, she said, we're going home. We're going home. A, where was she going? In the beginning of verse 6, the indication is that she's going to return, return. She decides to return home to Israel. It's interesting that at the first opportunity, Naomi is ready to go home to go back to Israel. It was a strenuous journey, particularly for women. And remember what the life of a woman was like in that day. Wow. Uh, they had no rights. They had probably no opinions, although I think they probably kind of slid them in anyway, don't you? <laughs> but anyway, um, they, she, as a woman on the road, it would have been a very, very difficult situation. She was going from, I wanted you to look at this, um, this map. Whew, that's a really hard word to remember, don't you think? <laughs> map. Anyway, but you see, do you see Moab? You see the arrow, and it's, it's, we're, we're going backwards because that's showing where uh, Elimelech brought his family across from Bethlehem, across down into Moab. And scholars debate exactly, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 70 miles. Now, can I just say, we're not talking about flying or driving your car. We're talking about walking or perhaps if she was fortunate enough to own one or two or three or whatever, a donkey. And most scholars believe that the, the distance between her returning from Moab to Bethlehem would probably have been anywhere from seven to 10 days. Again, remembering single women going through the wilderness and they would have to kind of go up in sort of a hill country area because of the Dead Sea. They weren't gonna go, you know, they didn't have um, yachts to go across the Dead Sea. So uh, they would have to go up and around. So it was a strenuous journey, yet she was ready to go home. Although Moab had provided shelter and in good times of need, it was temporary because Israel was her land. Israel was her home. Israel was the promised land that God had given his people. And so when the opportunity arose, she decided to go home. B, why was she going? Our clue again is in verse, the second half of verse 6. For she had heard the, the, in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. God had visited his people, the verse said. He had visited his people by giving them food. Number one on your outline, God visits. Visits rarely is used in the Old Testament as going to see somebody. Well, oh yeah, yesterday I went to visit my friend and we went out to lunch together. Or uh, I visited my friend and we sat down in the backyard and just had a wonderful time. That's not the idea. The word visited here is used for divine activity in the lives of his people. It's important to understand, number two, and boy, do we need to hear this today. God is in control. Would you say that with me, please? God is in control. And we'll kind of talk each other into that, okay? Because sometimes right now with the, um, 
the pandemic and all the things that are going on politically and everything else, we feel kind of out of control, don't we? We feel like, oh, what's to the rest of this day going to look like? And what's happening? And should I have collected a little bit more groceries before this day? And all those kinds of things. And we feel really, really frighteningly out of control. But the good news about this story, one of the great lessons that we learn, is that God is in control. It is his prerogative to visit in any way he desires. It's an expression of his sovereignty. In this occasion, his visit means the end of famine and bread had become available in the land of Israel. This visit is regarded as God's gift. Three, what do we learn? First, A, small a on your outline. We must never forget the sovereignty of God. He is in control. Yes, he loves us. Yes, he delights in visiting us. He, uh, but may we never forget that he is God Almighty. May we never forget that he, his name is Elohim, the everlasting one. Or how about Jehovah Sabaoth? which talks about how he is in charge of the hosts of heaven. Millions upon millions of angels in heaven are under his leadership and his direction as Jehovah um, Sabaoth. He is not my personal blessing dispenser. Don't we sometimes feel like that? Oh, God, please, could today, oh, help me with this. I got to get to my appointment. And oh, my goodness, the, the traffic is terrible. Please, Lord, I'm your daughter. Could you get me out of this mess or whatever it is? Or things a little bit maybe more serious than that. But we kind of act sometimes like God owes us something. Do you remember in the day, I don't know whatever happened to them, but do you remember the day you go in the grocery store and when you first walked in, there are those machines and you'd stick a quarter in and turn the knob and something would fall out. Do you remember that? Where did they, what happened to those? I don't know why they, they went, it was, I think it was even before COVID, but um, they're not there anymore. I remember going to the grocery store with Roby when he was a little boy and um, he, our particular machine in Winn-Dixie had football helmets in it. And oh my goodness, he's a football helmet man. And he would save quarters from his allowance. And we would go in. The first thing he'd do is take one of his allowance quarters, put it in the machine, and turn it and wait for one of the helmets to come out. He had quite a collection. But the thing was he wanted a dolphin helmet. And I don't know that he ever got one. But he surely tried, and he sure saved up his quarters. But so, and sometimes we kind of act like that. Like, I'll put in my quarter, turn the knob, and boom, God's going to deliver. And that is not the role of our Heavenly Father, of Elohim, of Lord Sabaoth. He does not exist for my sake. I exist for his. Let me say that again. God does not exist for my sake. I exist for his. And are we willing to serve him even if he doesn't choose to visit exactly when we want? If that gift doesn't pop out of that machine right away. I think there were times when that quarter would get stuck and Roby would turn and turn and turn. It's just very frustrating. And sometimes we're like that. That God hasn't delivered like we think he should. 
But again, are we willing to serve him even if he doesn't choose to visit? Oswald Chambers, a great devotional writer, said this, has God trusted you with his silence? Wow. Has God trusted you with his silence? Because you know what? I know in my life there are times when God seems very silent, when I'm having to wait for him in his timing and in his way to do what he's going to do in my life. And we're seeing this in the life of Ruth and Naomi and Orpah. Are we trying to control God to see it our way, or are we willing to know that God knows best, and are we willing to trust him? That is the question. B, we trust him and his perfect love all the time. That means we must trust him even to worship him and honor him, even in times of deep famine, even in the year 2020, even in the year 2021, when we're trying to figure out the whole pandemic, when we're trying to figure out the unrest, when we're trying to figure out the political situation, while we're trying to figure out what's, what's this going to look like in our futures, in our lives. Uh, we need to trust him. We are so self-centered sometimes, I think, that maybe I'm just talking about me, that sometimes we lose sight of who really is or should be in control of our lives. Who should be in control? Guess what? There's a higher being that is better at controlling me than myself. That's kind of a, yeah, hallelujah is right. That's kind of a hard realization sometimes. We think, wow, you know, I can kind of take care of myself. I'm going to figure it all out. And God, are you watching this here? No, he is in control. He is in much, much better situation of knowing the best way to handle. I think we sometimes forget that every good thing that happens to us is a visitation from God a visitation from God. A few years ago, some of you have heard me tell the story about my Aunt Jane, who um, was a faith missionary in Korea. And she came home to the States to, to uh, go to Baskin Palmer, and she was having some eye issues. And um, so I, she came and stayed with us for a couple weeks. And um, she, uh, I would take her down to Baskin Palmer, and she had to stay overnight a couple nights in the hospital and so forth. And um, I, I've told you the story before, but for me, it, it was just a, a time of watching her total reliance on God and the miracles that happened around her, it made me feel very guilty. And just a little sidebar, I've told you this story, but the day she uh, um, got out of the hospital, she went up to the desk to settle her account with them and you know, pay her bill and so forth. And she walked up to the desk, and I thought, how is she going to pay for this? I mean, this is Baskin Palmer. This is a specialized hospital. It's not just, you know, Memorial, <laughs> West or Regional or any. It, this, was, this was Baskin Palmer, specialized hospital. This is going to be huge. And she walked up to the desk, and she kind of waited her turn very calmly, no problem. And I'm like, oh, and scared to death. And she walked up, and she said, Mrs. Torrey, um, there is no charge. How did that happen? I don't know. God, God visited. He was in control of that situation. We got in that car and we were screaming praise songs all the way up the, 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 uh, 
the highway. But amazing. But as I saw her thinking about what her life was like back in Korea, I felt guilty because when I compared everything I had with her, with what was going on, um, I, I began to think, you know, really, who is the most blessed? Is it me in a comfortable home with uh, grocery stores so full that it takes hours to shop? Or um, how about Aunt Jane, who lives in the mountains of Korea, no hot water, no running, no running water. Uh, she had the same torn black shoes on that she had had 10 years before when I had seen her. And yet I began to think, you know what? Without a doubt, I think that Aunt Jane was more blessed than I because she got to see the sovereignty of God. She got to see the visitations of God every day of her life. I would go to the pantry and say, okay, what are we going to have for dinner tonight? Well, I don't feel like that. Well, maybe I'll try this. She would sit down at the beginning of the day with her family and they'd say, okay, Lord, um, what are we going to have for dinner today? And somebody would deliver something to her, her front step or something like that. And I began to think she had such a deeper understanding of the sovereignty of God and how he delights in visiting us. She was the blessed one. She was the blessed one. Wow. So continuing the story, Naomi and her daughters-in-law, verses 7 through 13. So Naomi set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to his mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of, the, each of you in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Verse 10. And they said to her, No, we will, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that will become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, to your, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this, uh, um, this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, this is, for it is exceptionally bitter for me for, this, for your sake that the hand of God has gone out against me. A, there was a deep love that existed between them. Uh, Naomi and her daughters-in-law, there's a deep love between them. Do you hear that? Notice that in verse 7, the daughter-in-laws prepare to go with her. They're prepared to leave their family. They're prepared to leave their surroundings that they're used to. They're prepared um, to leave their hometown and everything that they knew so that they could be with Naomi. You know, we know, uh, and we laughed last week a little bit after we studied about how mothers-in-laws and in-laws can be challenging, can't we? But what kind of mother must Naomi have been to engender such love and devotions from her daughter-in-law. Wow. Wow. Weeping that she was leaving. 
weeping that she was leaving. The love, the security, and kindness must have been incredible for them not to want to be separated, to leave everything to be with her. Wow, amazing. To give up life as they knew it so that they could go with her. Let's take a look at the caliber of love that we observe in these verses. What a role model she is in our love relationships, not just in-laws, but in all of our relationships. We need to model the kind of love and friendship and relationship that uh, Naomi had. B, what were the characteristics of Naomi's love? First, the light touch, the light touch. Look at verse eight. But Naomi said to her, again, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Look at Naomi's situation. She's in a foreign land. There were no fellow believers, (laughs) Jehovah worshipers amongst them. She had no fellowship. She was devastated with grief. She had no future, according to verse 12. But she, and she was about to make a difficult journey not knowing what the outcome would be. Perhaps, again, up 50 to 70 miles, um, days upon days on the road. And she has two daughters-in-law that love her dearly. Wouldn't the temptation have been, you know, thank goodness, at least I've got you two. <laughs> we can make this journey together. We'll, we'll protect each other on the road. And if my donkey gets tired, we'll use your donkey or whatever. And the temptation would have been to say, wow, okay, I've got these, uh, you know, these daughters-in-law that love me so well. Wow, this is wonderful. You can be my comfort and strength and support in my old age, but not Naomi, not Naomi. She loves enough not to cling. She has the light touch. And it's such a fine line, isn't it, to totally give of yourself in love, to be totally involved in the lives of loved ones, and yet not to cling, to give space, not depend on that relationship in your life. That's a very hard line, isn't it, in our lives. When we love like that, love has an opportunity to grow and flourish. Love is not choked out of the relationship. It's so hard for us to learn um, to give our children, for example, space and freedom within the confines of love and security. One of the the points that Bob always used to make in his parenting seminars is one of the things that we need to teach our children is emancipation from home. Because there's going to come a day when they're going to have to go off to college, or there's going to come a day when they have to move out of town with the family, with, uh, with their new family or whatever. And so what we need to do is to train them to be able to do it in a way where they feel loved and yet uh, not controlled, that they can follow their lives. I think one of the hardest is adult children. What do you think of that? Yeah. Yeah. uh, Loving them enough to let them learn from their own mistakes. When we start to see them doing something, you want to just jump and say, oh boy, don't do that, don't do that. And, um, but to, to let them learn from their own mistakes. Love through freedom. Loving them enough to be free from your advice, no matter how warranted it might be. But also, uh, we want to, to do that not only to love like that, 
to love with freedom. We also need to, not just adult children or children, we need to do that in all of our relationships and our friendships as well. Uh, we don't want to smother. We want to leave room for individuality and for growth. Apparently, Naomi had learned that delicate balance of total love and commitment and yet a light touch, a light touch, not throwing herself into the lives of her daughter-in-law. Second correct uh, characteristic of Naomi's love is closely akin to the light touch and it's number two, unselfishness, unselfishness. Do you see no, Naomi putting her own needs before them? No, no, we've already talked about that. She could have manipulated them, used guilt. Oh my goodness, you know, I, I oh, have to make this long trek on this donkey or walking and wow, I don't know if I have the strength and stamina to do it. She could have used guilt to um, make sure that they did indeed come with her. They obviously loved her enough to set out to go with her. After all, all the implications show that they came out of their own free will. She hadn't begged them to come. Instead, what does she do? She thinks first of their welfare. She gives them all the reason why they should go back. Look again, we just read it, but uh, verses 11 through 13, but Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I more sons and so forth? Verse 13, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. In other words, uh, I am, am I able to provide any more husbands for you? You know, am I at this age going to have any more sons? No. Um, I'm hurting for your sake that God has allowed this tragedy in my life. She says, God's hand has gone out against me, verse 13 says, allowed tragedy. We see Naomi understanding her situation. You know, some people think of her as a bitter old woman. In my opinion, no. I think she's honestly acknowledging that God has allowed tragedy in her life for some reason. But only a woman of character could respond selflessly. If she had been a bitter, angry, I can't believe God has done this to me and our sons and so forth, I don't think that we would have seen those daughters-in-law respond to her as they did. I don't think we would see, have seen her responding in the situation so selflessly had she been a bitter, angry woman. What a lesson for us to, as we desire to build strong relationships. We must continually put the other's needs before our own. Naomi continually thinks of the other first. We will see that throughout the book as she puts Ruth first in her consideration. We will never have the type of relationships that Naomi had if we're always thinking about me and my interests and what I want and what I do and what's best for me. When I'm thinking that way, I'm not going to have the level of relationship that Ruth and Naomi had. Wow. Jesus taught that principle in Luke 6, 38. You don't need to look it up, but it's a very, very strong uh, passage. Verse 38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Wow. Uh, it's such an amazing paradox of scripture. The culture teaches, you know, I deserve, I need to watch out for numero uno, 
I need to make sure I get my due. And that's kind of what our culture teaches us today. But what God is saying is the, the character that God blesses is um, not just materially, but through care and circumstances, is the one that is giving to other people where other people's concern are the uh, most important thing in their lives. And then God is able to open the windows of heaven and bless that person right back is basically what that is saying. Naomi was giving up one security she had, the daughters-in-law. That was the only thing she had as she was going back to Israel. And we will see the results. As we see Naomi reacting with such selflessness towards her daughters-in-law at this point, we will see that God begins to open up the heavens of, of, of his blessing in their lives. Third ingredient in her life, encouragement. Look at verse 8b again. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you dealt with the dead and with me. Do you hear her encouraging? It's such a common thread in the lives of women who are deeply loved. There were two ladies in my life as I was um, just beginning to start to teach. One of them was Corbell Morgan from Dade County. I don't know if any of you know that name. Um, another one was Grace Chavis. And um, they, both of them, had that quality. I, I was thinking about that as I was preparing this lesson. I was, starting, I was thinking about how, you know, Grace would stand, Grace Chavis would stand in the, the aisle at church, and she, some young woman would come up to her, and she, said, she would say, you are the sweetest, most beautiful woman inside. And she'd say things like that, and it wasn't flattery. It was real. She, she would, had an ability to pick out positive characteristics in their lives and edify them and lift them up. Same with Corbell Morgan, same thing. She just was able to speak into the lives of young women and encourage them. And so what happened was that they became deeply loved because she deeply loved them. I see that characteristic here in Naomi. I also know women in my life who think it's their spiritual re uh, responsibility to point out everybody's weakness. Do you know any people like that? You know, and um, say, well, you know, I, honey, I think you really ought to work on this. Or, hey, friend, I think you should do that. And, and get all involved in pointing out the weaknesses rather than looking for the positive things that we can edify in each other's life, like Grace Chavis and Corbell Morgan. Wow. I found multiple verses on using the word encouragement. Three in 1 Thessalonians, one in 2 Thessalonians, one in Titus, and that's just a few. And that's just using the word encouragement or encourage. Imagine the, the number of verses that are present throughout the, the word of God that have that same connotation of encourage, maybe using a different word. Very, very important concept in scripture. Number four, we see in her, the ability to give, ability to give. In every real relationship of, of substance, we need to give. But here's the other thing. We also need to receive. Do you know anybody who, um, you know, gives, gives, gives all the time and taking dinners to sick people and blah, 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 blah. And then when it comes time for them to receive, it's like, whoa, no, I can't do that. We need to have both the ability to give but also to receive. We will see in Naomi the ability to do both. Later on in Bethlehem, we will see her ability to receive at the hand of Ruth. Here we see her giving. What does she have to give? 
poverty-stricken, bereft, no hope for the future. She gives the gifts that money cannot buy. She gives the very best gifts of all. She gives love. She gives concern for their well-being above her own. Mentoring of how to go on in times of crisis. How do we cope when all seems lost and dark? Wow. Boy, do we need to think about that today? Yes. She gives her encouragement, wisdom, and most importantly, shares the center of her strength, the center of her strength, which is her relationship with God, which is the fifth ingredient of her love. Number five, love, her love, was based on her relationship with God. How does she communicate that? First, A, she was a mentor. Her relationship with God was so real to her that even in the midst of such extreme suffering, it permeates her life. So much so that we will read between the lines in verse 16 um, when, when Ruth says, your God will be my God. Ruth wants to embrace her faith. Notice that she says, your God, very personal. Notice that she says, God is in caps, indicating that her understanding was that Yahweh was the only God. What an amazing example uh, a mentor Naomi was that um, for, for this young heathen girl to want to become a worshiper of Yahweh, the one and only God, even as she dealt with bitter circumstances, even as Naomi had so many difficulties in her life, there must have been something so profound in the way she lived out her life that the girls picked it up particularly Ruth, and said, I want your God, capital G, to be my God, capital G. Wow. A surface understanding would have made her think, what has your God ever done for you? you would, if, if Naomi had not exuded a faith in her God, would Ruth have said, wow, I want your God to be my God? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. B, she teaches a right relationship with God. It's interesting in her case to uh, persuade the girls to go home. Very skillful and logical, the name of God that she used. She was very skillful in which God, the name of God she used. In verse 8, 9, and 13, she uses the name Yahweh, the Jewish personal name for God. She's teaching if only by uh, inference, that she is referring to the one true God, not the many of gods uh, that uh, Ruth's culture worshipped. She dismisses them with a prayer, with a blessing and a kiss. Again, verse 8 and 9, we've already read it, but uh, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you will find rest each of you in the house of her husband in other words i pray for you i hope for you my goal for you is that you will remarry and settle and be be comforted and uh, restful in your new homes and then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept she also teaches uh, through her attitude toward God, verse 13, she acknowledges that God's hand has gone against her, has allowed these things to happen. We know she isn't bitter because 
clearly she still sees him as the giver of blessings as she prays for him. If she were bitter against God, she would have said something like, okay, you better stay here in your land because, you know, look what my God does in my life. Had she been bitter, she would not have had that attitude of, I deeply desire for God to bless you because he is a giver of blessings. So we can see in her, my opinion, not a bitterness, but an openness to God and sharing that with her daughters-in-law. She prays that they have rest in her mother's house. Rest in Hebrew connotes security and blessing of the Lord. Naomi, in her selfish love for, uh, for the daughters, finally, in her unselfish love, I should say, for her daughters, finally persuades Orpah to go back. We should not condemn her, but see that Ruth was not so easily persuaded. She must have had a very strong personality. Ruth showed a deeper level of commitment and of love. Perhaps Oprah's uh, greatest wish was to become a wife again. Ruth's greatest wish, apparently, was to remain a daughter. She wanted to be with her mother-in-law. She wanted to learn more about this new God that she was embracing, that Naomi embraced. Wow. What an amazing daughter. Let's look at see what were her characteristics. What were the characteristics of Ruth's love? Look at verse 16 and 17. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God my God. When, where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more. Also, if anything but death parts you from me. Wow, pretty strong words, right? Amazing, amazing. Such beautiful words. First of all, what were her characteristics? Number one, sacrificial, sacrificial. When she uses the strongest language she can to show her level of loyalty. She is cutting off all ties with her family, her country, uh, everything that she's ever known. And, you know, there was no getting on a plane and saying, you know what, I'm going to fly from Bethlehem and uh, go to Moab for Christmas to visit my family. No. When she left for Bethlehem, it was probably the last time she would ever see her family and anything that was familiar to her. Number two, she embraces all of Naomi's life. Notice again what she says, where you lodge indicates wherever Naomi's life may, would be, her lot would be, whatever was going to happen to Naomi, that would be for her as well. Whatever happened, whatever her life looked like when she got back to Bethlehem, I am going to do the same thing, is what Ruth is saying. The situation was not good for a sonless widow. Basically, they would be beggars that we will find out later on. There was no security, and most significantly, she will embrace Naomi's God. Not small God, not small G, but a capital G. She uses the name Yahweh, again, the personal name of the Jewish people. Yahweh, their personal God, the name that Naomi had taught them. Number three, we see in her, her, her love, what it looked like. Three, commitment. We see that her determination is to be with Naomi was not just short-lived. Verse 17, where you die, I will die. Not even death will part them, is what she's saying. Is that a level of commitment or what? Yeah. Is that quite a woman or what? Wow, I'm glad we're studying her right now. Mm -hmm. 
She has no idea what the first future will hold, even when they, if and when they make it back to Bethlehem. And yet she is committed to that relationship. Look at verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Naomi realizes her determination and she doesn't argue anymore. She says, okay, let's go. Get on that donkey and off we go. Or, you know, tie up your sandals and off we walk. Or whatever it was that she said. Naomi realizes how determined she is. The word for determined in verse 18, she was determined to go with her. In Hebrew means unshakable firmness. Unshakable firmness. Don't you love that? That when Naomi saw her unshakable firmness, she says, okay, let's go. Let's go. Let's start the trip. Wow. Amazing. Now, how does this apply to me? How does this apply to you? In this throwaway culture, it's just too hard for me. Um, I need to go get an aspirin really quickly because I'm, I'm having a slight headache here. Um, wow, especially in times like what we're going through right now, do we have this kind of grit and stamina to do the right thing? Wow. What is the level of commitment and love in my relationships? Are, who are the people that God has brought into my life to love? Where do I need to grow in my expressions of selfless love like Ruth had for her mother-in-law? We end this lesson as Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem. And so next on your outline, arrival in Bethlehem, look with me to verse 19 through 21. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is that Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity to upon me? Verse 19, the buzz. What was this? Wait a minute. I thought Naomi, didn't Naomi leave with her husband and two sons? And here she is. Where, where are the men? And who's this woman? What's going on here? And so there, there was a buzz about her coming back to town. A, what was Naomi's response? Was she angry at God? Was she bitter? At the first read, it sounds like it, until we understand what she says about God. She's saying, don't call me Naomi, which in Hebrew means pleasant and delightful. Now I am bitter. Mara means bitter in Hebrew. I think her comments on God give us a clue of what was she was trying to say in her heart and communicate to them. Number one, she recognizes God's nourishment. I want you to look quickly at verse um, 20 and also 21. She recognizes God's nourishment. She uses a name for God here, Almighty verse 20 and 21, almighty. And the word for almighty in Hebrew is Shaddai. And it means great power, 
that cannot be resisted. And here's the other thing, and this is what gives us a little hint into her heart of what she was saying about God. It also means bountiful, pour forth of all bounty. That word shaddai comes the, from the word breast, the source of nourishment. And so she is saying that God is the life giver, the nourisher who pours himself out for his creatures. He is a beautiful, nourishing God, is what she's saying, as she calls him almighty. Secondly, she's recognizing his sovereignty, this nourishing God, this loving God, this all-powerful one, blesses, and yet, in his sovereignty, he allows bitter circumstances. Uh, He has brought calamity, she says, dealt bitterly with me. What she is saying is God in his nourishing bounty has seen fit to allow this time of bitter events happening in my life. There's a reason for it. He's a sovereign God. He's allowing uh, this to happen to me, but he is a nourisher. He is a giver of good things. So you see what she's saying. She's saying, God is good. He's wonderful. If, he didn't, if she didn't believe that, would Ruth have embraced her God? Absolutely not. But she's also uh, regarding his sovereignty. B, Naomi responds in submission. I think that she recognizes it and submits to it. I believe that she says, call me bitter because she's in bitter circumstances. She's not saying, hey, I am a bitter girl. She's saying, I am in bitter circumstances. And so she's acknowledging that it's, it's very difficult. In my opinion, I think her attitude is one of, if Shaddai wills it, so be it. I went away in a delightful circumstance, Naomi, and I've come back in bitter circumstances, Mara. And we will see the incredible, loving, God-ordained, circumstances at the end of the story. That's what I love about this whole story is because we know that it has a very happy ending, doesn't it? We see the nourishing El Shaddai pouring out on not only Ruth but on Naomi as well. In summary, God is sovereign. He visits us. We are quick to embrace it when it comes in a form of blessing. Oh my goodness, can I wait to tell you what God did? And we should be doing that. But In his sovereignty and in his love, we don't know the whys of the afflictions that he permits. Why did he allow this? Why? Haven't we felt that so often, especially in these last months, when things have felt so out of control and frightening? You know, we as Americans have, you know, historically, we just kind of go on and, you know, it's great and, you know, I got to go to the grocery today and get the laundry done, get the kids off to school and um, I get to my job and, and, and we kind of get rolling in our normal routines. And then all of a sudden something like 2020 happens and we're like, what? And, and we don't understand it? And why would God allow this? We don't know. When we get to heaven, we'll find out. Or maybe in 2022, we'll find out. But whatever, we don't understand. But what we need to do is decide, am I going to receive in God's sovereignty his blessings as well as his bitter circumstances because he is going to work 
something good out, even in the bitterest circumstances. And we find that to be so true in this book. James Renwick, a Scottish covenanter, said this, Faith can read love in God's heart when his face frowns. Wow, that's profound, isn't it? Can find, faith can read love in God's heart when his face frowns. Do I submit in faith to Shaddai in famine, infliction, as well as those times when he pours out blessings in my life? Am I only just a blessing embracer? <laughs> or am I willing to say, okay, God, this is ugly. <laughs> this is painful. This is ununderstandable. I don't get this. But I trust you. You're El Shaddai. You're God Almighty. You're the amazing God. I, am I choosing to trust you? Is my worship, here's the next question, is my worship conditional? Is my worship, do I trust the goodness of God? Is, his good, is he good even when things look dark presently? Wow. Do I trust the goodness of God? And guess what? He is good whether I trust him or not. God is who he is. God is God, the sovereign, mighty king. I need to decide if I will be content if God chooses to be silent in my whys. Again, faith can read love in God's heart when his face frowns. Am I willing to embrace that? Am I willing to embrace that? For previous lessons or other resources, please visit sharedinhouse.org or call us at 954-583-1552. We hope you can join us again next week.